So today I want to start this service by asking this question. What makes you think, and this is what people are asking me, what makes you think your God is better than anyone else's God? And I'm about to tell you that as God reveals himself in Scripture. And I'm going to show you some things. And in fact, when you leave today, the guest services team has a little, uh, has what I'm about to put on the, on the screen with even more verses for you to look up. I would encourage you to look that up. You'll get an idea how big God is. But we're going to fly through this real quick. So the God I worship is... Before all things, created all things, upholds all things, above all things, knows all things, can do all things. Next screen. Accomplishes all things, rules over all things. Now check this out. In control of all things. What's he in control of? He's in control of earthly kings, human events, good angels, Satan and bad angels, human decisions. God's, com- God's sovereignty just might be the most comforting thing about him. See, the reason I worship my God is because of this word sovereign. It means if he is sovereign, if there's one God who is sovereign, it means no other God, lowercase g, can be sovereign because only one, by definition, can be in charge and and sovereign. And so the whole idea, this, this idea that we serve a God who is in charge all the time might be the most comforting of all his virtues. We're looking at seven different virtues. Last week, God was good. This week, God is sovereign. Next week, God is holy. Now, my brothers, when I was in eighth grade, my brothers gave me a, a study Bible, a Ryrie study Bible, New American Standard. The cover has fallen off of this Bible, but it's still the Bible that I read every day. I just can't get rid of it because my brothers gave it to me. There's so much that I've highlighted and written in there. I read it every day. Now, the reason I tell you that is I'm about to give you a definition of sovereignty that was written by Charles Ryrie. Ryrie was the, the general editor of the Ryrie study Bible. Here's what he says about sovereignty. I love this definition. The word means principal chief supreme. Now look at this. It speaks first of position. God is the highest. God is number one. There is no other. It speaks first of position. He's the chief being in the universe. Then of power. So sovereignty means he's number one in position. He's number one in power. God is supreme in power in the universe. How he exercises that power has been revealed to us through the scriptures. And what we're trying to do is figure out exactly who God is as God reveals himself. Not what your mama told you, not what your grandpa told you, not what some pastor told you. We want to see how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. A sovereign God could be a dictator. Because think about this. If he is supreme in power, nobody tells him what to do. He could be a dictator. But the real God who's revealed himself in the scripture is not a dictator. Um, Or a sovereign could abdicate the use of his powers. That means he could just set everything in motion and and just sit back and say, y'all... Y'all figure it out, and I'll see you at the end. But the God of the scriptures is not abdicating his power. He's very involved in the lives of people today. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, though he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws which he has ordained. What natural laws means is there's a law of gravity. Does anybody, anybody defy the law of gravity lately? You can, you can run out and find a thousand foot cliff and jump off and you can creatively remove yourself from the gene pool if you want to because I don't care how much you don't believe in gravity when you jump off of that cliff, you're going down. Just because Orville and Wilbur Wright figured out how to get a contraption to fly for a few seconds does not mean that the law of gravity went away. They just overcame that law for a brief period of time. And if you get into this, this big old aluminum tube and you go 30,000 feet above the ground and something happens to the aluminum tube's engines, what's going to happen to the aluminum tube? It's going down because there's a law of gravity. Now, God could step in. He could keep that, that plane from crashing, but he doesn't usually overcome the natural laws that he's put into place. Does that make sense? 
So if you decide to go up there and something goes wrong with the plane, you're coming down. It's not God's fault. You tried to overcome the law of gravity, right? Uh, here's another definition. This is from R.C. Spruill, who was a pastor, theologian, had a radio program. He's passed away since, but I, I love several things he said. If there is any element of the universe that is outside of his, God's authority, then he is no longer God over all, and the scripture says he's God over all. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator. If you see, if you see a watch laying out there, do you think, oh, uh, the, the forces of, of evolution just came together so that a watch was created? No, you think somebody created the watch. We look at life, we look at everything out there, and we say there must be a creator. God, the creator, owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. He's in charge. Now think about this. In the midst of a fallen world full of pain, suffering, mystery, mistakes, sin, betrayals, hurts, in a world of terrorism, in a world of sex slave trade, it, radical Islam, con, con artists, political corruption, in this world where there's all kinds of junk, isn't it comforting to know that there is a God, capital G, who is in control? He's over all. He's sovereign. That's why I say this may be the most comforting of all his virtues. See, the sovereignty of God is that which separates God, the God of the Bible, from every other religious philosophy ever in existence. See, God is sovereign means he's in absolute control of time and eternity. Now, I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to say if that's true. And when I say if that's true, you're going to say it is. Let's practice. If that's true. All right. God is sovereign means he is absolute, in absolute control of time and eternity. If that's true, here's what it means. Nothing will come into my life today that the sovereign God did not know about. And then this, nothing today, nothing ever. He knew. He's not up there wringing his hands going, oh no. He's never been surprised. Never even had a question come into his mind. He always has the answer. We just don't. And if I'll cooperate with him and trust him, he'll actually take the very worst thing that can happen in my life. For example, a spouse that walks out. The cancer that brings death or the cancer that caused Sherry Lindsay to have to have a hysterectomy so she can't have biological children. But praise God, all of the cancer is out. It's gone. She's recuperating. That's a yes, yay, come on. <laughs> She's listening. <laughs> it means he can take that cancer that Sherry had. He can take the, the situation where a drunk driver maybe kills a loved one of yours or the wayward son, the wayward daughter, the betrayal by a business partner the messed up finances, the loss of a house, even terrorism, God can work all of that stuff out for good. See, if God can take the worst Friday in history where an innocent man was crucified for the sins of the world and we can now call that Good Friday, he can take whatever it is in your life and he can work it for good. Here's the deal. If you have a small God, you're always going to have overwhelming problems. But if you have a big, sovereign God, now listen to me, it doesn't make the pain any less. It makes your perspective of that pain different. Your, your pain becomes smaller when you see a sovereign God. You're still hurting because we're human. But there's a sovereign God who's over that. You'll gain the perspective of this God who made you for something so much more than this tiny little planet in this tiny little universe compared to all the universes that are out there. Now, it's good to know the facts, whether you have cancer. It's good to know, you know, whether you're bankrupt or not. It's good to know the facts about your life, but it's, it's even better 
to know the promises of a sovereign God in the midst of your, your uh, problems. And I was reading Psalms. I'm studying Psalms right now. I just read Psalm 22 this morning. A few days ago, I read Psalm 11, and I was studying this. And here's what I came across in verses 4 and 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test. Now, I highlighted test, the sons of men. The Lord tests, so I highlighted that as well, the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. This word test or tests means to test something by fire. So like you, you superheat some metal, gold or silver or some type of metal. You superheat it so that all of the infirmities bubble out. And what you have left over after this superheating fire is more valuable than what you had before. This idea of testing is the Lord tests the righteous to bring out the best in them. But there's an enemy of God that's alive right now and the enemy tempts us to bring out the worst in us. So it's like God allows this super heat to come to your life so that all of the impurities are taken out and your life is more valuable to God after the pain than before the pain. And as soon as you turn that over to God, the enemy comes in and he tempts you to put those impurities right back in that God has just taken out. See, God wants us to trust him because when we trust him, no matter what, our trials work for us instead of against us. Well, if that's true, then... then then we need to understand how God reveals his sovereignty to us. I'm going to tell you five things. Some of them we're going to go through quickly because they're in the small group study, and you need to watch. Even though we don't have small group tonight, you need to watch that study um, before next week. If nobody does, we'll, we'll play both of them next week. But we, you really need to do this because this is an incredible study. How does God reveal his sovereignty? First is through his titles. Just going to give you a few. Calls himself Sovereign Lord. He calls himself Most High, Alpha and Omega. That means the beginning and the end. King of Kings, capital K over all kings. See, the Bible reveals to us that God is not recruiting some team like the Avengers or like uh, the Justice League where you have this superhero like the Hulk can do this and Iron Man can do this. God doesn't need a team. God's his own Avenger. He said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is, is his own justice force. He needs no one. He's in a league by himself. And his titles reveal that. He's in charge. He's by himself. Second way God reveals his sovereignty is through his promises. I love the promises of God. There is a promise of God for every situation you will ever face. And you need to discover that promise to get you through that. Here's one in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. Now, I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, write down good. And I want you to write down Romans 8, 28. I'm not going to tell you what the good is right now, but we're going to come back to it in a minute, and I'm going to tell you what the good is. But here's what the verse, the promise says. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those. Oh, not just for the good, because a lot of people say, well, God causes everything to work for good. That is not what the verse says. It says it causes everything to work together for good for two specific instances. To those who love God, well, I love God. And to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, I'm not doing what God called me to, so is this promise to you? No. This promise is to God will make good or bad. It doesn't say God causes everything to happen. It says whether good or bad comes into your life, God will cause good for those who love him and are, doing, are on his path. He will cause it to work out for good. Now, if God is going to make that promise that he's going to work everything that happens in your life out for good. Doesn't he have to know every motive of every person who's ever lived in every situation in order to weave it together for your good? The answer is yes. He has to be a sovereign God to make this promise. Here's another promise. This is in Philippians chapter 2. 
Therefore, God exalted him, we're talking about Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And here it is, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's another one of those titles. He is Lord with a capital L. See, I've been saying for three weeks, there's two categories of, cre- of beings. There are created beings and there is God. He's in his own category. So this promise says all created things, angels, demons, believers, unbelievers, Everything that has been created will one day, either out of relationship with Jesus Christ, so they'll bow because they're in relationship with him, or out of a demonstration of God's power, because when God says, a sovereign God says bow, everybody's going to bow, either through relationship or through a demonstration of his power, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. God has to be sovereign to put a promise like that in Scripture. This one's yet to come. He has to be sovereign to bring that about. He has to be in charge. Another way he shows his sovereignty is through prophecy. Did you know that one-third of the Bible is prophetic, not pathetic, prophetic? And what that means is God has told us before things happened with 100% accuracy, every time he foretells something, it comes true. So one-third of the Bible is prophecy. Now, at the time that Israel, actually, when this, when what I'm about to read you was read, it's the prophet Isaiah, God sent him to Israel because the nations around Israel had their own gods, and they believed their gods were confined to a certain area. So they had gods of the land, they had gods of the air, they had gods of the sea, gods of, of the harvest. And, and so they had a list of gods, and they would make these little idols. Some of them had, had uh, ram's heads with horns, and it was just bizarre, some of the things they would make up, and they would bow down, and they'd say, this is your God, and Israel's God was the only one who said, I alone am God. There are none other like me, none other before me. And Israel's God said, don't you dare make an image of me because no man has ever seen my face and lived. I'm a holy God. You're to be a holy people. And so this God, the one that, that the only monotheistic single God religion at that time issues a challenge to all of the other gods because the Israelites are like, oh, we like that God. Yeah, because you can have sex at church with somebody who's not your wife. That's what they would do. They were temple prostitutes. Oh, honey, I got to go to church. Yes, oh, uh, it's right. Vomit. And so they're saying, we like this God and this God and this God. And the, and the real God says, no, 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 let's have a challenge. Look what he says in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. The real God. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. Here it is. I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. The real God says there's no other God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Here it is. Yes, let them foretell what is to come. He says, okay, if these gods are like me, let them tell with 100% accuracy what is going to happen in the future because that's what I've been doing. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Then he says, is there any God besides me? And then then God answers the question in case you don't know. No, there is no other rock. I know the real God says, I know not one. He's saying to Baal and Molech and all of these other gods, stand up, tell us what's going to happen because I've been doing that. If you're for real, predict with 100% accuracy what's going to happen in the future. And see, I want you to see this video. You have to see this video. Chip's going to talk about this stuff because it's incredible what all God foretold to just the prophet Daniel about the, the, the powers that were going to happen after that. Incredible how God did that ahead of time. 
Um, so he challenges him. He says, step up because this is what I've been doing. If you can't do it, you're not a God. Fourth way that God reveals his sovereignty is through Jesus. Oh, this is, here's a rabbi who starts his ministry at 30 years of age. At 33, he's killed. So a little over three and a half years, he teaches. He never travels more than 30 to 50 miles away from his hometown. There is no internet. There's no satellite. 80% of the world is illiterate, so there's very little written down. How can a rabbi who never travels very far, he never travels any further than from here to Jacksonville, Texas, and he has no way to get his message out, never writes anything down. How does he turn the world upside down? Well, I'm going to tell you at least one key is in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. Paul says this, but when the right time finally came, this is a teaching you have to hear. Chip is going to tell you all of the things that God brought together from governments to, to roads, all of this stuff he's going to tell you about the right time at exactly the right moment God sent Jesus his own son, calls him his son again. He came as the son of a human mother and lived under Jewish law. Um, it is unbelievable all of the circumstances God brought together at just the right time so that Jesus Christ would be born to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. So don't miss that. Now, I just want to give you one example of how Jesus could turn the world upside down, and it comes from Matthew. And, and in the book of Matthew, I did not realize how many times Jesus was called the Son of God until I just started doing a little study this last week about the Son of God. The very first reference of Jesus as being the Son of God, the real God calls him my son, and it's in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my what? Son, the real God says, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. Well, I started looking this up. So God calls him the son of God. Jesus says, I'm the son of God. Remember when Pilate asked him, are you the Christ, the son of God? And he says, I am. Um, there's a time the Roman centurion is looking at him at the cross. And, and it says that after the darkness from noon till three, when there was an earthquake, when, when lightning was in the sky, the centurion who didn't know God, he said, surely this was the son of God. When Peter was asked, who, Jesus said, who do you say I am? Everybody's like, oh, you're a prophet or whatever. Who do you say? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Satan came to test Jesus, now a lot of translations say that, that Satan asked the question, if you are the son of God. That's not the literal translation. The literal translation is when Satan comes to Jesus, he says, since you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Prove it is what he's saying. Since you're the son of God, he knew who Jesus was. Jesus didn't do any of that. He said, since you are the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Since you are the son, bow down before me and I'll give you everything. Not if, since Satan, the enemy of God, calls him the son of God. And then even his followers, Satan's followers, call him the son of God. One time Jesus comes up and oh, actually several times, demon-possessed people see Jesus and they say, what do we have to do with you, son of the living God? Have you come to torment us before our time? So if Jesus' followers call him the son of God, if his dad calls him the son of God, if Jesus says he's the son of God, if the enemy of God calls him the son of God, if the, enemy of, uh, if the enemy's workers call him the son of God, what is the logical conclusion that Jesus is who? The son of God. Thank you. This is eyewitness testimony. And if Jesus is the son of God, the son of God is God, right? The son of Doug Washburn is Caleb Washburn. He's a Washburn, whether he wants to be or not. He doesn't most times. 
My grandson, who was here this morning, he is a washburn because his father was a washburn. The son of a washburn is a washburn. The son of a horse is a horse. I'm not saying Caleb or Waylon are horses or Jesus is a horse. I'm saying that it's logic, right? That you, you bear the image or the, the, the genetics or whatever of your father. If Jesus is the son of God, he is God. That's what he was claiming. Everybody knew what he was claiming, and that's why he was killed, was because he dared to claim he was the son of God. Now, before, long before anyone ever thought about crucifying Jesus, I want you to see what Jesus said in John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it. How? Jesus says, long before, he says, I'm going to give up my life. For I have authority, this is awesome, I have authority to lay my life down when I want to. Any of us could do that. But look at this. And I can also take it back up again. Holy cow. He says, for this is what my father has commanded. He said this years before anyone thought about crucifying him because he called himself the son of God. To make that claim when he did and to the people he did, he was either nuts or he was the son of God. And when it happened, just like he said it would, you know, what his, you know what his followers said? Yep, he's the son of God. And, and people who had run for him, from him when he was arrested refused to even be associated with him when he was on the cross. When they saw him resurrected from the dead, it changed their lives, and they went all over the known world, and 11 out of, well, uh, there were 11 at that point, all but John, tradition tells us, were were martyred rather than say Jesus is not the son of God. How do you go from a coward who runs to somebody who says, I'm going to die believing he's the son of God? You see a dead man walking. Not only that, you see a dead man who predicted he was going to die, who predicted he was going to come back after three days, and you go, oh, surely this was the son of God. It changes you. Okay, so Jesus was, was the son of God. Why did he have to come? Well, Let's read John 3, 17. You know John 3, 16. Let's read 3, 17. For God did not send his son, calls him the son again, into the world to condemn the world. Now, I'm going to read that again. When I get there, I want you to say the first time. So just say the first time. Say it. Okay. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, there's a second time? Yes. We'll get there in a second. The first time. He didn't come to condemn the world. What did he come for? But to save the world through him. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make themselves alive. Someone has to come and give you spiritual life. And so God sent his son to die in our place, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The only way you get adopted into God's family is to come through Jesus Christ. So the first time he came to, to rescue imperfect people, that's why he came at the right time, at the perfect time, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us. But if you read Revelation, you see that Jesus is coming back a second time. And the second time is going to be different. He's coming as a righteous judge. Everything that was unjust and unfair, God's going to make right. Everybody's going to be given an opportunity to humble themselves, and most people will not. And when he comes that time, it's coming as a righteous judge. Look at Revelation 19. First verse is verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages, what kind of war? A righteous war. This is going to be a war. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Takes us back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
His name, the one on the, on the white horse, his faithful and true word of God. On his robe at his thigh was written the title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. That's who's coming back the second time. First time he came not to condemn but to save. The second time he's coming to be in charge. The sovereign God will take over. And the only way you get to be a part of his kingdom is if you accepted what Jesus did the first time. Now, there's one other way I want to talk to you about that, that God shows his sovereignty, and it's through pain. My favorite seminary professor was named Dr. McGorman. When I had him, he was 72 years old. He had a, he had a daughter who was mentally challenged, and, and she, she had two children way back in the, um, in the 70s and 80s that, um, outside of wedlock, and so that was just, you know, in the Baptist church and in the Baptist seminary, that was just scornful, but she was mentally challenged. Dr. McGorman adopted both of these grandsons, and he was begging God to allow him to live till at least 84 years of age so that the youngest grandson could graduate from high school and, and make it to adulthood. This was my favorite professor. My favorite professor um, always said, pain drastically reduces your wish list. And he went through all the pain he went through. He was one of the most godly men I've ever known. In fact, um, Dr. McGorman, when he would read to us, so I took him for um, uh, 2 Corinthians and I took him for Romans, the book of Romans. And uh, he would be up there reading and he would read along. And so first time students didn't know about Dr. McGorman, they'd say, excuse me, Dr. McGorman, what translation are you using? And he would go, the Greek New Testament. I mean, dead serious. He was like, and, and somebody said, you're translating as you, yes. I, almost like, and you don't, you know, and, and we're going, I got the NIV. Um, but this was a godly man. And he would say, suffering drastically reduces your wish list. And then he would say, don't you ever quote, quote Romans 8.28. I had you write down good earlier, Romans 8.28. Don't you ever quote Romans 8.28 without also quoting Romans 8.29, and here's what it says. This is the good. For those God foreknew. Now, I've got to stop on this word. Foreknew means before there was anything created, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they knew who were going to come into their family. They knew that Jesus was going to have to come and die. This was before the beginning of any time. God foreknew this. He also predestined that those who he foreknew would be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God does, whether it's good or bad that happens in your life, is he makes you look more like Jesus. He molds and shapes you so that you bear the image of Jesus Christ. One of my, one of my girls in my youth group when I was in Arlington, her daddy died and he was like 35, 36 years old. Um, it was just this tragedy. And I heard Dr. McGorman say this and I remember going to their house and praying with them and, and I said, all I, all I can do, this was a horrible tragedy. This girl, teenage girl doesn't get to have her daddy around. And, and I said, all I can do is I can pray that God will make you look more like Jesus Christ. That's something I pray for you. When I hear something bad goes on in your life, I start praying, God, this is not good and you know it's not good, but the good you can do, God, is you can make them look like Jesus. For, the God he, for, the, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Uh, do you know how God usually conforms us, makes us look like Jesus? It's through pain. C.S. Lewis has this illustration, and, and I got some fishing line up here. Can y'all see the fishing line? What, what test is it? Chase, I'm just messing with you. It's, it's 10 pound. You were close. 10 pound test line. Not going to catch a very big fish, but just go with me. C.S. Lewis said, imagine this fishing line goes from eternity that direction and eternity that direction. 
He said, now, time is one little dot. So if I had this little pin and I could make a little dot right there, that would be all of time from the beginning of God creating until the end of time. It would be one little bitty dot in this line that stretches for eternity. You with me? Then if you could take a super microscopic whatever and you could make a little, little bitty dot inside the dot that represents time, he said that represents your life compared to eternity. And then C.S. Lewis asked this. He says, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? And I'm just going to tell you, I think we're living for the dot because our problems are so big compared to what? Eternity? They're not very big. See, God, God's not nearly as interested in your happiness as he is in your holiness because your holiness lasts for eternity. Your happiness is temporary. Are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? See, if I can understand that, how big eternity is, then I can begin to understand a sovereign God, how big he is, and that he has a purpose in my life that's so much bigger than that microscopic dot. He has a purpose for my life that lasts for eternity. See, God has a desire for you, and here's, here's his desire. He wants two things. He wants to adopt you into his family, and he wants to conform you into the image of Christ. He wants you to make you look like Jesus. He wants you to bear the family resemblance, and he does that through pain. And if you don't choose this sovereign, big God to rule your life, the only other option is you get to be God with all of your wisdom and all of your finances and all of your ability to know what's going to happen tomorrow and six years from now and a hundred years from now. Good luck with that. Yeah, thank you, ladies. I got one section. I'm, I'm going to turn. I, uh, I came across this, this. How many of y'all have heard of Corey Ten Boom? She, uh, she was in Holland and she was arrested by the Germans during World War II for, well, her family was for housing Jews because her dad was this incredible guy. He was, a, he was a watchmaker and watch repairer and they had a watch shop in Holland and when the Germans overran that, um, this, this is cool, I was reading about, I was reading about him, um, Mr. Tinboom, and, and it said that, that he was such, as, as you can imagine, a clockmaker or clock repair guy would be, he, he was very detailed. So every day at 8, 10 a.m., he would be walking down the stairs for breakfast. Every day at 8.30 a.m., they, after they finished breakfast, all of his employees and his children would gather and they would read the Bible. I mean, he just was like clockwork, no pun intended. Everything in his life was, was, was like this. And, and he had um, several children, but he had two children still at home. Corey Tinboom was 45 years old, never married. She still lived at home. Her older sister, Betsy, was 52 years old, never married, lived at home. They had an older brother and sister who had married and moved off. Um, and, and because their father had always believed that all people were created in the image of God and that all people mattered to God, when the Germans started exterminating the Jews, he started hiding Jews in his house. It's called The Hiding Place. That's the book. That's the, the biography, of, a biography of their lives. And so they were eventually ratted out by, by a man, and they were arrested, taken to a prison. From there, they were taken to a concentration camp where people were exterminated, not only for being Jews, but for sympathizing with the Jews. And, and when they get there, so, so um, Corey Ten Boom, 45 years old, her sister Betsy, 52 years old, went to prison, then to this concentration camp, and, and here's what she shares. 
So at the concentration camp, she says, we lay back struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. Here, there, another one. I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize that Betsy was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we asked. He always does that. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the hall, the long dim aisle, to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving Schwenigen, the, the prison, and coming to this concentration camp. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressively for this concentration camp. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes, rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I love Corey Timboom. I would like to have met her in the day. She only she died, I think, in the, in 1983, something like that. Um, Corey says, "I stared at her, then around at the dark, foul-aired room, and I said, such as, such as being assigned here together." Corey says, "I bit my lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus." Such as what you're holding in your hands. I look down at the Bible. Yes, Lord. Thank you that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, Betsy said. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close that that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey? Oh, all right. Thank you for the jam, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for... The fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Betsy said, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of the place where God has put us. Makes you want to smack her, doesn't it? I'm sure that's what Corey was thinking. And so we stood between the tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Back at the barracks, we formed yet another line. Would there never be an end to lines, to waits, to receive our ladle of turnip soup in the center room? Then as quickly as we could for the press of the people, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship service. Around our own platform area, there was not enough light to read the Bible, but back here, a small light bulb cast a wan yellow circle on the wall, and here, an ever larger group of women gathered. They were services like no others these times in barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I called these meetings with great timidity, but as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after evening roll call. There on the Lagerstrasse, so outside, we were under rigid surveillance, guards in, the warm, in their warm wool caps marching constantly up and down. It was the same in the center room of the barracks. Half a dozen guards or camp police were always present. 
Yet in the large dormitory, uh, in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. We did not understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground. It was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling, and here, here you see Corey's um, personality again. Well, you're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. That afternoon, she said there'd been confusion in their knitting group about sock sizes, and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why, Betsy said? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her, fo her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. And Corey said, my mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. The sovereign God allowed them in a situation that most of us could not have handled. And Betsy... Betsy had the, the wisdom to thank God, not for the, the circumstances themselves, but to thank God in the midst of the circumstances because they did not know what God was up to. Betsy died in that concentration camp less than 10 months later. Corey Ten Boom was, was released. Her father died 10 days after being arrested. And Corey spent the rest of her life traveling the world, writing this book and telling people about what a great God she served, telling people about forgiveness. In a couple weeks, I'm going to read to you about when she comes across one of the jailers, one of the, one of the guards that, that she recognized. She was in a church years later. He'd come to Christ, and she said, at that moment, I learned what forgiveness was. Now, here's the deal. You cannot know the truth of your situation. Put a capital T because truth is not some concept. Truth is a person named Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is capital T. You cannot know the truth of your situation until you have heard from a sovereign God. Last week we talked about God is good. Today we talked about he's sovereign. If he's in charge... If he's good, that means you can trust him. Have you been? Some of us have, some of us haven't. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Father, I just pray that your goodness, your sovereignty would catch hold in our minds as a seed and it would grow larger and larger the longer that we're on this planet so that we realize that we're, you never create this for this little dot within a dot. You create this for eternity. That means you've got a plan that goes beyond February 27th, 2019. You've got a plan that goes, or March 3rd, we're on March 3rd. I'm not even on the right date. God, your, your plan goes beyond today. Your plan goes beyond 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Your plan is eternal. That means I can trust you on March 3rd and however many days you, you, you allow me to live. God, transform us into people who believe your word and we believe what you've said about yourself. 
And as we believe that, you transform us into the image of your son. You conform us to look like Jesus. You, you cause this reflection to go out from us to people outside these walls. And they know it's supernatural. And they say, there's something about you that's different. And we get to tell them about our sovereign God. God, increase the, the opportunities for us to witness outside these walls by teaching us about who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.